This year our theme is living an abundant life. Jesus came that we might live an abundant life, he said, and our hope is that many, some at Northside will begin to move toward the abundant life because not all of us are living at the level that Jesus intended us to. Jesus said very clearly, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He came to give us eternal life. We know that's the purpose of his coming to earth. But he also speaks of an abundant life. He's the God of all joy. He wants us to live a life of joy. He doesn't want us to mope through life in a joyless uh, fashion. He came that we might have an abundant life, a rich, full, overflowing kind of life. Since we're Kansans, I've used the picture of uh, an abundant harvest to kind of focus our minds as we go through this year, uh, because we understand about abundant harvests. We know that doesn't happen overnight. It's not a miracle kind of thing. We know you have to go through the process. A farmer has to clear the field, has to get the weeds and the bugs and the problems out of it before he can plant the good seed and fertilize it properly and then trust God to deliver an abundant harvest. Our plan to get an abundant life is exactly the same, basically. If we want the abundant life, uh, we have to start by clearing the field. So that's what our first series of lessons has been about clearing the field, things that we have to get out of the field uh, so that we're able to plant the seeds that will grow into an abundant life. In the last five lessons, We've talked about five different things we need to clear the field of. Uh, Sin and worry and pride and judgmentalism and unforgiveness. Last week we talked about judgmentalism. Uh, That's a harsh, fault-finding, critical spirit. And if you've got that, what the Bible says is that it causes God to judge you that way. It causes other men to judge you that way. And it kills the abundant life. If you live with that kind of spirit and others are treating you that way, you can't have an abundant life. The week before that, we talked about unforgiveness. It's a sin that wrecks our relationship with God. It prohibits Him from being able to forgive us. It poisons our soul when we can't forgive others. Before that, we talked about pride. We discovered that pride's a sin. In fact, it's listed as one specifically that God says he hates. And it also opens the door to so many other sins. It's the gateway to so many other sins. Worry, we found, was a direct disobedience of Jesus' command because he said not to worry. So obviously, if we do worry, we're, we're sinning, but it's more than that. It's a lack of faith. Uh, worry has no place in a Christian's life. Worry also destroys that abundant life that we're talking about. It uh, kills any chance of an abundant life growing up. Of course, we started with sin, which was kind of a, a generic big topic. All the rest of these things are sin. But when we talked about sin, we weren't talking about sin in general. We weren't talking because we all are sinners. We were talking about willful, unrepented of, rebellious sin. And if a Christian has one of those, or two of those, or something, but if he has one of them, that he's holding on to, that he just will not get rid of, it destroys the abundant life. And our picture for that one was the old prophet who finally hacked King Agag to pieces 
because the Amalekites just kept coming back and kept coming back and kept bothering the Israelites and impoverishing them and stealing life from them. And Samuel said, we've got to, we've got to get rid of this. We've got to hack it to pieces. And we've got to do that with that sin. Uh, that one sin maybe that we're holding on to, we've got to pull it out, ex- admit what it is, confess that it is sin, and hack it to pieces. Uh, if we do that, we can start making progress toward the abundant life. So we've looked at five life-destroying problems that must be gotten out of our life. Today, let's look at our sixth, and actually it's going to be our last life-stealing problem, worldliness. Worldliness. I may say it's not that there are only six weeds in our field. Uh, We could do this series for couple of years probably and not run out of things that we need to get out of our lives. But I think we've tackled six major ones. I think we've tackled six that probably contaminate the majority of fields. Uh, these are in many lives to one degree or another. I said when we started, uh, this wasn't for everybody. Some of you may have no problem with any of these. Uh, but somebody's got a problem with each of these. And that's the one that the Holy Spirit is speaking to this morning. So don't think of this as number six on the list of life stealers. Now don't think of it as there's five worst things. Uh, this may be number one on your list. This may be the number one problem in your field. Your heart, maybe it's be chock full of worldliness. But it is, it's got you trapped down at a lower level. Got you trapped at a level that you're not enjoying life like you should. You may be down there wondering, why am I not experiencing this abundant life that he keeps talking about? Well, in fact, you might even argue with me all day that worldliness is not a problem in my life. Well, if you're on a lower level, if you're not enjoying the abundant life that God promised you, take a look at this one. Let's consider worldly. This one's sneaky. A lot of them kind of slip up on us, but this one is probably the sneakiest of the bunch. Pay attention. Uh, The other reason you need to pay attention, uh, this one's hard to believe. Uh, This one is hard to believe that worldliness could be bothering you or I. So open your heart as well as your ears as we consider this sixth problem. Let's start in 1 John. John warns Christians about a fatal attraction. 1 John 2 and verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Don't love the world or anything in the world. And then he goes on and he says, If anyone does love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that ought to get our attention. That's a serious verse. If something, then the love of God's not in you. What, John? If you love the world. If you love the world or anything in the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. Well, I could have stood at the door as you came in and asked each one of you, do you love God? What would have been the answer? Oh, sure, of course. Yes, why would I be at church if I didn't love God? John says, some of you are lying. John says, if you love the world, then you don't have the love of God in you. It's not me saying that. John says that. 
John says there's a serious problem here. It's a fatal attraction. If you've fallen in love with the world, you don't love God. A fatal attraction. Dan Gallagher suffered a fatal attraction. Most of you have no clue who that is. Uh, That was a character in a movie. Michael Douglas played Dan Gallagher 20-some years ago back in the 80s. And the movie was called Fatal Attraction. Now, a lot of you didn't see it. And that's a good thing. Because it's an R-rated movie. Uh, And I wouldn't expect most of you to have seen it. But you may remember it because it kind of caused quite a stir back at the time. People talked about it. It got a lot of attention. Uh, Psychiatrists and psychologists were interested in it because of the message it sent and all of that. So I thought it came to my mind. I looked it up on the Internet and kind of got the story gist of it. The, The gist of the story is that Dan was a successful attorney. Very happily married, had a beautiful daughter, everything going fine. And one weekend, his family was out of town, and he was alone and worked late and ran into this woman named Alex, who was played by Glenn Close, and she attracted him. And Dan was attracted to her. He ended up having a one-night stand that weekend. At least he thought it was a one-night stand because she had some mental problems, and she began to pursue him. She began to show up at the place where he worked. She began to uh, come to his office. She began to call his home. She was stalking him. It finally got so bad that he moved his family out of New York City to try to get away from her. She followed him there. She continued spiraling down into madness, was what the movie was about. She finally kidnapped the daughter. She attacked the wife in the home. Uh, Like all good thrillers, she was the villain, and we had to kill her a couple of times, but we finally got her killed, if some of you remember that famous scene. Uh, But she finally got out of Dan's life after all of that, but basically destroyed the family. Now, the reason people talked about it so much was because at the time there were a lot of psychologists and things I remember saying, this is probably a helpful movie. This will probably scare thousands of men out of every considering an affair. They'd just scare them to death. They'll stay away from that kind of thing. Well, I realize it's kind of strange for me to choose an R-rated movie as an illustration, but I did so for two reasons. Number one, because of the title. The title, Fatal Attraction. I think we need to understand that. Worldliness is a fatal attraction. Worldliness is a fatal attraction. It's attractive. It looks good. It looks harmless. But it chokes out the abundant life. And John tells us it will eventually kill our eternal life. Worldliness is a fatal attraction. Attraction. The second reason I picked it, because it's about adultery. The subject of the movie was adultery. And I think we need to understand that because James equates worldliness to adultery. In James chapter 4 and verse 4, James says, you adulterous people. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? 
Now let's think about that for a little while. Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. And he calls us adulterers if we're friends with the world. Let's just think about adultery for a little while and see if what John say, uh, James says here makes sense. Let's say Johnny meets Sally. Johnny is attracted to Sally. She's attracted to him. They begin to date. They begin to get closer. They become good friends. They finally fall in love. Johnny marries Sally. Sally's the perfect woman to Johnny. He wants nothing in life. His only desire is to give her a great life. That's what he wants her to do. He wants to do. He really, really loves her. He, he wants only the best for her. He is totally, completely, unconditionally in love with her. And Sally reciprocates. She loves Johnny. Uh, she knows how much he loves her. She commits herself to him wholeheartedly. All she wants to do in life is honor him and love him and meet his every need. And time goes on after they're married, and one day at work, another man begins to pay Sally a little extra attention. Uh, he's good looking. He's funny. He's nice to her. He compliments her. She likes the extra attention. Now, now don't misunderstand me. Don't get ahead of me. At this point, I'll guarantee you, unfaithfulness does not enter her head for one nanosecond. Never. It's the furthest thing from her mind. Not even on the radar screen. She loves Johnny. Only him. It's the only one she loves. But this is harmless. This is okay. Then the other man begins to flirt. Let's call it. And make some harmless comments and she wouldn't even call it flirting. She wouldn't even think of it as flirting. She just thinks it's kind of fun. But he does make her laugh, and he makes her feel good about herself. And she finds that she begins to think about him sometimes. At times when she should be totally focused on Johnny. Uh, at dinner sometimes, or at a movie, or even in bed. Sometimes... This other man pops into her head for just a moment and distracts her for just a little while from Johnny. Well, it progresses. The other man begins to give her gifts. He confides in her. They begin to go to lunch together. Now, now don't under, misunderstand me. Sally would never cheat on Johnny. Never. Not a possibility. Not going to happen. She's just got a friend. He's fun to be around. There's nothing wrong with this. But the other man begins to uh, pressure her a little bit. And he is good looking. You know, he's got a great job. He could provide really well for a girl. He's got fun friends. He likes to take vacations in exciting places. He's He's just a lot of fun. Uh, and, and over time, she doesn't even notice it, but over time, the importance of her vows to Johnny start to fade a little bit. They start to become not quite as important as they were. She begins to forget. She begins to forget all the dreams that she and Johnny had. 
she begins to forget how hard he has always worked to make her happy. Now she, she still loves him, but the other man's pressuring her now to spend more time with him and go more places and do more things. Things that used to seem really, really wrong, but now they don't seem that wrong. They seem kind of harmless. They seem kind of natural. Well, finally the day comes when she has to break the news to Johnny that she wants out. She's found someone else that makes her happier. She assures him it's not his fault. It's nothing he did. But she's just found somebody that makes her happier. She, she still wants to be friends. She'd like to check in with him once a week or once a month, maybe. But it's really time to move on. And I hope you understand, Johnny. James 4.4 4 says, you adulterous people. Don't you know, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Does it make more sense now? Do you understand why friendship with the world is spoken so harshly about by James? See, we don't understand this topic. That's one reason it's so hard to talk about it, because we define it as so many things that are just harmless. We define it as other things. Well, let's define worldliness so we know what we're talking about. Some groups, including some of the Amish folks, define worldliness by saying it's modern things. Well, that's an easy definition of worldliness. If electricity and automobiles and tractors and TVs are worldly, then all you have to do is ride in a buggy, plow with a horse, dress old-fashioned, and you're not worldly. You're not friends with the world. To many churches from the holiness movement, uh, Pentecostals and others in that movement, uh, worldliness is a list of prohibited activities. If you don't dance, if you don't play cards, if you don't go to movies, if women don't cut their hair, if they don't wear jewelry, if they don't wear makeup, if you don't smoke, drink, or chew, or date girls who do, then you're not worldly. It's a nice definition. It sounds kind of easy. Here's the list. Just just give us a list. Here's 23 things. If you don't do these, you're not worldly. There are 37 things or 43 things, or maybe we'll think of number 44 some week. And that keeps you from being worldly. Tell you a little secret about lists. Satan loves lists. You know why? Because when we sit down to make a list, we will put adultery on the list, but we'll never put flirting on the list. Lists are dangerous. Satan, however, he will use whatever works. If you ask Satan's what worldliness, he says whatever works. Whatever works. You remember our theme verse, John chapter 10 and verse 10? Jesus came to give life and to give it more abundantly, and Satan wants to steal and destroy and kill that life. That's the verse, folks. That's the whole plan right there. Jesus wants us to have eternal life. He wants us to have an abundant life, and Satan wants to steal it and destroy it. Jesus called him in that verse the thief. Calls him the thief. 
Did you ever know a thief that was concerned about what method he used to steal from you? Thieves don't care. You leave your garage door open, they'll walk in and steal your lawnmower. You lock the door, they'll kick the door in. Put everything in a big safe, they'll blow the door off or tie a chain on it and haul it off. They don't care what method they use as long as it works, whatever works. So if you ask Satan what's worldliness, I think Satan would say whatever will draw those people away from their focus and commitment and love for God. Whatever will draw them away. Because you see, Satan's the prince of this world. We're dealing with two spiritual worlds here. We're in one. We're in love with God. We've committed to him. And Satan wants to steal that. He wants to attract us away from it. And he will use whatever works. Understand this. Satan doesn't care how long it takes. Satan doesn't care how slow it is. He doesn't care how gradual the attraction is because he knows the process of fatal attraction. He knows how it works. And as long as he can get you started, as long as he can draw you away with that first look, then he's got you in the process. It's just like Johnny and Sally. That's why James called it adultery. The process of fatal attraction. We got to understand this. The process of fatal attraction It starts with the first step. The first step is flirting. Sally saw absolutely no danger in visiting with that other man, did she? And during that time when that was happening, she didn't notice it. But when it was happening, at that point, her focus was not on Johnny. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Well, this is where it gets so tricky. We need some earthly things. We need food and shelter and transportation and clothes and even some fun. You know, all work makes you a dull boy. We got to play a little bit. So we need some worldly kind of things. But at some point, we start flirting with it. At some point, it starts to look good. It looks good. It makes us feel good. It makes us look good to others. And at that point, even if it's just a little tiny moment, at that tiny moment, our focus is not on the one who first loved us. It's been drawn away. We're just flirting. There's no problem in it. I can't even tell you you're in danger when you're flirting. I can't tell myself, Tandy, you're in danger here. You're flirting with the world. I mean, I'm still firmly committed to God. I'm still serving him. How can I say there's any problem here? Well, that's the first step. At some point, you don't even notice it, folks. At some point, though, you move to the second step where you start forgetting your vows to God. You start forgetting all he's done for you. You forget what you used to know is really important in life. Jesus told the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, 4, he said, you have forsaken your first love. And he says, remember, repent. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember how it used to be with God? 
You've forgotten that. So remember it and repent and, and do the things you did at first. It happened gradually. They didn't just set out one day and say, we're going to forsake God. We're going to forget all about him. They started flirting. And pretty soon they were forgetting. And all of a sudden it wasn't so important anymore. The vows, the commitment, the relationship, the dreams that he had for you, all of that you begin to forget. If you don't remember and repent at this point, if you don't get the worldly attraction out of your life, you will ultimately reach the fatal third step. The third step is forsaking. Forsaking God completely. We may have some visitors from some place that teaches once saved, always saved. And at this point they're saying, no, it can't happen. You don't forsake God once you love him. Well, let's read 2 Timothy 4.10 before you get too carried away with that. You, you look at what Paul said about Demas. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul wrote to Timothy about his brother in Christ and his fellow worker Demas. And he said, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. You understand who Demas was? He was a Christian. He was a brother in Christ. He was a missionary worker with Paul. And Paul said, he loved this world. Demas didn't just wake up one day and say, whoops, I'm confused. I think I love the world. I can guarantee you, Demas went through the process. He started flirting. He started forgetting. And pretty soon he told Paul, I've got to forsake you. I'm out of here. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. When Sally started the process at the very first flirt, what if I'd have walked up to her and said, Sally, let me tell you something. In just a few months, you will forsake your husband for this man. She would have thrown me out on my ear. She said, you are nuts. No way. Absolutely will not, cannot, never will happen. When Demas was working hard with Paul, when he was serving God 24-7, if I'd have walked up to him and said, Demas, I believe you're going to forsake Paul and God one day. He would have said, get out of here. No way. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Absolutely not in my mind. John and James both say it's a fatal attraction. You start down that road, it's a fatal attraction. You ever see a three-year-old start to run down a hill? Maybe just a steep driveway? And you know what's going to happen. You say, slow down, stop, come back. But they're handling it just fine, aren't they? Their little legs are keeping up, and pretty soon gravity starts to kick in, and their legs got to go a little faster. And pretty soon they get where the legs can't keep up. You know what's going to happen. They crash and burn. Okay? you got to learn about gravity. Well, John and James tell us, once you start down this road, it's a fatal attraction. The safest plan is don't start the process. And that's why people make lists. And define it as things they can see is so they can try not to start down the process. But that's not the answer. The answer's up here. It's all in your head. I think we said that one time, didn't we? Don't start flirting with the world. Don't start flirting with the world. Where are you in the process? I bet if I ask you, probably 99% of you would say, not me. <laughs> no, uh, I, I haven't got any worldliness problems. No, no, no. I'm committed to God. Don't call me worldly. 
Are you sure? Are you really sure? How do you know if you're falling in love with the world? See, Sally wouldn't believe me. Demas wouldn't believe me. And you won't believe me either. So I'm asking you to look. I'm going to ask you to do your own assessment and see if you're falling in love with the world. I'm not telling you you're going to forsake the Lord tomorrow. In fact, understand this. This series is not about salvation. So for right now, let's assume these two things. Let's assume, number one, nobody in this room is going to forsake God. We just assume that. Nobody's going to forsake God, so that's not what we're talking about. Second, let's assume that all of us are attracted by the world. I really think that's a safe assumption. The world attracts us to different degrees. What I want to do this morning is get you to stop before you get to running so fast that your legs can't keep up and you crash and burn. This is about the abundant life, not about salvation. I want you to have the abundant life. Jesus came that you might have abundant life. And if you let this process start, if you get drawn away by the fatal attraction of worldliness, it's going to steal the abundant life. That's what Satan wants. Even flirting with the world to that degree begins to block God's ability to bless us. God wants to bless you with the abundant life. Okay, let's do it a rapid evaluation I want you to take this home. We can't do it all here. Yeah, I put all sorts of verses on there. You can read them when you get home. Read the whole context. Now, it'll take some time. I'm expecting you would have to be serious about this. And let me caution you. Only do that if you really want the abundant life. You know, I mean, if you're interested in the abundant life, go home and do this self-evaluation. You don't care. If you want to stay on the bottom level, throw it away when you get out of here. All right. Number one, rapid evaluation. How do you spend your time? Ephesians 5 and verse 15 says, be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Well, how do you spend your time? Well, you can tell me you're real godly if you want, but I'm asking you to evaluate yourself. You're telling me you're not worldly. I'm asking you to check. Get you a chart, write down what you do every day. Do it for a week. That'll be enough to tell you how you spend your time. Make, give you some clues. If you've got time for five sitcoms and four reality shows and every latest movie and don't have time for your daily Bible reading, you better ask yourself some questions. How do you spend your time? Are you flirting? Are you starting to forget? Is he attracting you away? Analyze your time. Second, how do you spend your money? Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 says, don't store up treasures on earth because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and you cannot, that's fairly strong, you cannot serve both God and money. Impossible. That's one of Satan's famous tools to attract you away is the money thing. Sit down and evaluate your debt, how much you save, how much you spend, how much you give. If you hadn't done it yet, sign up for the Crown Financial Course that's advertised in your handout. I would, if I could, I'd make that mandatory. Every Christian ought to have to go through that. Yeah, you'll start to find out what worldliness is and godliness and the way you handle your money. So think about how you handle your money. Somebody said one time, if you let me see your checkbook, 
I can tell you what's important in your life. You spend your money tells you a lot about whether you're just flirting or you're forgetting or you've already forsaken. Here's, here's a simple test. Do you give 10%? I know some of you are masters of the New Testament and you tell me it's not in there. Guess what? It, it's a principle of God. It's a guarantee of God. And if you say, well, it's not in the New Testament, so I don't have to do that. Guess what? The world has convinced you that you can spend money on other things and ignore God's guarantee that he gives you everything you've got and the first fruits belong to him. And if you steal them from him, he cannot bless you. The world has told you that. How do you spend your money? Who do you try to please? Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. If I were still trying to please men, Paul says, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. (laughs) Paul used to try to please men. When he started serving Christ, he said things like he did in 1 Corinthians 4, 3. He said, I care very little if I'm judged by you. (laughs) It's the Lord who judges me. I don't care about what people say. Oh, yeah, I don't mean, I don't want to be mean to them and make them unhappy and all that, but that's not what I'm here for, to please people. Paul says, I don't care how you judge me. The Lord judges me. So in this world, who do you try to please? Are your decisions about behavior and dress and money and everything else decided by, I wonder what the gang will say. I wonder what culture will think about me. If you're trying to please the world, better check yourself. Take a look at your relationships. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, book we're studying on Sunday nights. He said, since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? You just look at your relationships. If they're messed up and and you're not getting along with people, whether in your family or at work or at school, Paul says you're worldly. If you follow God's principles, you get along with people. You're at peace with people. If your relationships are messed up, you're worldly. Check your priorities. Matthew 22 Nick told us about this last Sunday night. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. What's your priorities? Well, check it. Sit down and think about it with your family. Let me ask you this. Are you as close to God and his family as you've always been? If you're not, then you've had a priority change. I I see it every day. I have people that I I notice they don't, they're not here for a few weeks or something. I ask them, well, where you been? Well, I'm just so busy with my business. You know, we're getting that started and we got to get going. It just takes so much work and all that. Okay. I know what your priority is. Where you been? Well, you know, we're fixing up the house or we're building the new house and that just takes so much time and we don't have much time. Okay. I know what your priority is. Where you been? Well, the kids, they got, they got sports every weekend. We have got to be over here and we got to be over there and it's just so busy and all that. Okay. I know what your priorities are. Check your priorities. The world wants to get you away from the number one priority. And if you're flirting, if you're forgetting, if you go in that direction, you got to stop. How do you value your possessions? Interesting story in Matthew 19, 
Jesus told a rich man that come up to him and said, how can I get in heaven? He said, well, go sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Go sell everything you got and give it to the poor, and then you can come follow me. And the Bible says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Does this say you shouldn't have possessions? You shouldn't be wealthy? doesn't say that. Look at how I worded the question. How do you value your possessions? Jesus looked at this young man's heart and he said, possessions are what he loves. That's what he is hooked to. That is his priority. That's his love of his life. So I'll test him. Go sell all of them. The young man said, oh, no. No, 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 no. They're too valuable for that. You understand what he was asking for was heaven. So Jesus tested, yeah, he said, you can have heaven, just go sell everything. The guy said, no, I got to hold on. I got I to have everything that I have. How do you value your possessions? Do you seek power? Matthew 20 and verse 16 says the last will be first and the first will be last. How hard are you climbing the corporate ladder? How, how much power do you want in control? What are your pleasures? What are your pleasures? First John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17 is our key verse today, the one we read for you. It says, all that's in the world, here's all of Satan's tricks, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. It's not of the Father. Those things are of the world. What are your pleasures? Lust of the flesh means sense, having sensual, having to do with your senses, your five senses. Does it feel good? Do you make yourself feel good instead of making others feel good? Lust of the flesh. What are your pleasures? Write them down. See what you love to do. See if it's making you flirt or something you shouldn't be. Now, when you've completed this evaluation, if you're honest, I really believe you will find that the world is seducing you. The world seduces all of us. It gets us. It's sneaky. He's good. He's the prince of this world. He knows. uh, He just gets us. I think if you really go through this, you will find out that the world's been seducing you. So what I'm telling you is you got to stop it now. You got to back up. You got to turn around. You got to go back uphill instead of continuing to run down the hill with your brakes off. Been trying to give you practical steps every one of these lessons. Now, bear in mind, you can go back and read the first five lessons. All those steps apply. Because there's a lot of stuff in there about praying and focusing on the Word and everything that you need to do. But each week I've just been giving you a few more. Today let me give you three. First step to a remedy of this problem. Here's a real simple idea for you. Psalm chapter 119 and verse 17. The psalmist said, Lord, turn my eyes away from worthless things. Go home on your computer. Pick... Huge font, big, big black font. Print you out a little slogan like that. Put it right on the top of your TV. Oh, Lord, turn my eyes away from worthless things. Put it over your computer monitor. A lot of places you could put that slogan. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Notice I didn't tell you to write... Turn my eyes away from evil, filthy, disgusting things. 
Oh, you can find those on TV. You can find them on your computer. It's not what this verse says. This verse says, turn your eyes away from worthless things. The world wants you looking at worthless things. So the psalmist prayed to God, keep me from doing that. Pretty simple idea. Second idea, Paul says, just stop. In Ephesians 4.17, he ordered the Ephesian church to no longer live as the Gentiles do. Here's your test. If your coworkers, if your fellow students, if people that you're around can't see any difference between you and someone in love with the world, you've got a problem. Paul says there's two ways to live. You can live like a Christian, or you can live like the Gentiles do, like the sinners do, like the people who are in love with the world. And if people around you can't see any difference, then you better think about it. I don't know what it is in your life. I don't know what you need to change. I don't know which one of the points in the evaluation there got you, but you got to be different. Doesn't mean you have to ride in a buggy and dress different. But you may have to dress different. You dress like the world. Paul says, just stop. You know, Romans 12 and verse 2 says, don't conform to the world. Transform your mind. Don't conform to the world. Look at, listen to this one translation from a modern translation. It's Romans 12, 2 says, don't become so well adjusted to your world that you fit into it without even thinking. That's a pretty good definition of not conforming to the world. That's why I ask you to take this test. Sit down and look. Can, can anybody tell I live differently than people who love the world? Paul says, just stop. And third one, it takes daily effort. It takes daily effort. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16, watch your life closely. He was a preacher, so he said, you watch your life and your doctrine closely, but you watch your life closely. That means it takes some effort. Evaluate yourself every once in a while. It's not a one-time test. You can do this every month, every quarter, every year. Pull your daily calendar out. Look at it. See what you spend your time on. I already told you that one. You can write other things down. Watch things closely. I've given you this example before. I read a lot, and I like to read books that they're not bad, but they're worthless. You know, they're fun, they're easy read, they take my mind off anything serious. I like those kind of books. A number of years ago, I got to thinking, you know, I spend a lot of time reading stuff that's worthless. So I, I got me a little black book and started the journal, and every time I finished a book, I wrote it in that journal and wrote it down. Number one, I found out how many books I read a year. But then I also put some columns out there, and I checked, is this good for me? Is this worthless? Is this required for work? Is this required for church? What I evaluated them. Well, it didn't just help me see what I was reading. Guess what? It changed my reading pattern. Because if I wrote down a Robert Ludlum book and put it in the list and I looked in the last two books I read were worthless books, I'd say, I can't read another worthless one. I got to go get a good one. Okay? If you look at my shelves now, I got a lot more biographies. I got a lot more books that teach me something that are good for me. Okay. How did I change? It was easy once I saw what I was doing. Once I started watching my life closely. So whatever your problem is, watch it closely. It takes daily effort. 
Okay, Jesus really wants you to live an abundant life. We've seen this picture, we've seen this verse every week, a couple of times every week. It's what he came for. And since he came to give it to you, it is absolutely attainable. It's the plan for you. Some of us don't think so, but it is. The Holy Spirit is ready to help. God is ready to pour out blessings. All you have to do is your part. That's the plan. Look at this field with me. This is what we've been doing. That field back there is plowed up, cleaned up, ready to plant, it looks like. But when you see all these things in there, how would you like to try to plant anything in that field? You couldn't drive a tractor through it. You know, <laughs> if, with all that stuff in there, if you did get a tractor through it and got one or two seeds to take root, guess how fast they would be choked out. This field is full of mess. No way an abundant life is going to grow in this field. So we've seen that that's the first step. Get the sin and worry and pride and unforgiveness and judgmentalism and worldliness. Get them out. Hack them to pieces. Burn them up. Once you've got it cleaned out, then you can start to plant the right thing. That'll be our next series. Every week we've closed with exactly the same advice because here's what Jesus says. You can hear what I said. You may have filled in all the blanks 100% correctly. You may believe exactly what you ought to do. But if you walk out of here and don't do it, Jesus says you're a fool. He says, if you hear what I'm telling you and you put it into practice, you're a wise person. So put it into practice. Before we leave, let me just ask you one question. Are you able to say that you're living an abundant life? Able to say that? I had the lady tell me this week, you know. Me and my husband have been talking about that. We are living the abundant life. They're an older couple. They got good kids. They got good family. They got it going right. They say, you know, we are living the abundant life. If you can't say that, these lessons that we've gone through have shown you six things that might be holding you down. And I didn't target any of you, but the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit has identified some of you personally, and he has pricked your heart with some of these topics that we've talked about. And you have realized, maybe you forgot it as quickly as you could, but you realize for a little bit, that's my problem. That's the one I've got to get dealt with. I've got to get it out of my life. If so, if so, if you've spotted one or two or six or however many, if they're in your life, I guarantee you, you're not living the abundant life. Because that's the way it works. That's the plan. If your field is choked full of these things, it's impossible to live at the top level. You've got to let go of these behaviors. You've got to put into practice the remedies that we've been talking about each week. The Holy Spirit is ready to help you as soon as you take that first step. And then you can have some hope of moving up to the overflowing, rich, full, abundant life that he came that you might have. Sometimes you can do that alone. Sometimes you can handle it yourself. You say, here's my problem. I know what i got to do. He's given me the practical remedies. I'm going to go home and do it. Sometimes you need to confess and ask for help from your family, your spouse, your kids, your parents. You need to bring it out in the open and ask for help. Here's what i got to work on. I want you to help me. Sometimes you need to ask for help from your church family. If you need that this morning, 
If we can help you in some way, our elders are going to be at the front. Come tell them what's in your life that you need to get out. Ask for our help this morning. Whatever you need to do, however you need to do it, clear the field so he can bless you with an abundant life. Come while we stand and sing.